The following presentation is part of the six-week Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation class offered at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's really a radical simplification. Our thinking about our experience and the thoughts that we have about the thoughts that we have and onward and outward like that makes for a very complicated life and uh, experience. But we can profoundly simplify it by simply noticing that sitting is like this now. Breathing in is like this. Breathing out is like this. And I mentioned last week the two qualities that really support this continuity, this simple presence, the continuity of this simple presence. One is, one of the qualities is remembering to relax or to trust or to allow the experience to be the way that it is. So just remember that's one quality. You can't help, if you bring that to mind, it can't help but to help. Because that invitation to relax is useful. It's practical. And then the other quality we're cultivating is the quality of alertness. It's more of an assertive or a a bright quality of mind that is interested in seeing clearly the way that it is. And it might sound contradictory to the relaxation quality, But actually, you'll find, the more you work with this practice, that it is possible for the mind to both, to be both relaxed and bright or alert at the same time. They, they don't have to contradict each other. And it makes so much sense that this would be a really competent way to be in the world. For the mind to be both relaxed and alert. So, in the simple way, you know, when we put aside our 30 minutes a day to do the formal meditation practice, it makes sense that, well, how could that be harmful to spend 30 minutes a day, 45 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, or whatever you have, to develop and balance these two qualities of mind, more and more and more bright alertness in the mind, and more and more and more relaxation, and trust, and acceptance, and allowing in the mind. Just keep building those two qualities, and the development, the coming together of those two qualities, and the strengthening of those two qualities is what we call samadhi, or the unification, the strengthening of the mind. It's really a healing of the mind, a strengthening and healing of the mind. So you would call a weak mind, or a sick mind, a mind that is not relaxed and is not interested, not alert. Not easy to show up and to know what's happening. Not easy, not easily for the mind to be interested. You know how that is, like when we're really feeling overwhelmed by life or overwhelmed by a cold. It's like, it's like moving through glue to sort of pay attention to something. It's like sometimes we're so sick or so overwhelmed. We can't even track a good novel. It's like the mind is just too 
fragmented to sustain attention enough to follow a storyline. All we can do is sort of, you know, sometimes all we can do is sort of sit there. The mind isn't really good for much. But when we have this balance of alertness and relaxation, that's the mind that's good for anything. It's the, in the Buddhist tradition, we say it's wieldy and malleable and basically willing to do whatever it's asked to do. If it's asked to just sit there, it just sits there. If it's asked to figure something out, it figures it out. If it's asked to open to something that it doesn't yet know, it opens, you know, in that without judging, without preconceived ideas, it just sort of takes it in, what's going on. Not afraid to not know. This is really great to have a mind like this. I always say that this development, this balance, or what we call samadhi, is like fundamental human competence. There's real, there's really no competence in any activity without this balance of alertness and relaxation. So this is what we emphasize initially. It's not the end of the practice, but it's definitely important in the beginning of the practice. It never stops being important, by the way, but in the beginning, it's really what we want to learn. We want to get a sense of this skill of developing these two qualities of relaxation tranquility, and alertness, interest, brightness, sort of a pure interest in how it is, how it is right here now, not how it is like wanting some intellectual explanation to how it is, but wanting to understand, wanting to see clearly in the moment how the experience is. Oh, this is the experience of touching. It's like I was saying a few moments ago, like when you're touching or hearing, or any kind of experience. But when you have that experience, and you're really sustaining attention, interested in the actual experience of touching, it doesn't matter if you've read every book that's ever been written on touching, and you're the world expert, you know, you yourself have written books on touching. (laughs) There'd probably be people who would read them. (laughs) Who knows? Depends on your cover. (laughs) But the actual experience of touching is different than whatever's been written about it. And the thing is, when we know directly the experience of touching, it doesn't matter what anybody else has said about touching or written about touching, because we know directly the experience of touching. Touching is like this. This is the experience of touching being known. So it eliminates doubt from the mind. One of the telltale signs you're caught up in thoughts about things is when you have doubt. When you're being mindful, there's no doubt because we're not in that conceptual mode dependent, the mind dependent on a conceptual meaning that it, you know, like, explain this to me. Would you, Mark? Tell me what's going on. Am I a good person or a bad person? Should I be here tonight or not? Should I have stayed home? That's all on a conceptual level. But to, to know that sitting is like this, sitting here now is like this, I don't need any conceptual explanation because I directly know that this is like this. This is how it is now. So you really see, literally, you'll see doubt disappear 
when the mind grounds into the present moment in a sustained way. Oh, it's like this. Breathing is like this. The mind doesn't need additional meaning. That's enough. Just to know that breathing in is like this, or achy knee is like this, or hearing somebody sneeze is like this. It's amazing how it's this simple way of being. It simplifies things so much that what normally sort of dominates the mind, the sense of personal problems, things that need to be resolved or figured out, figured out, they fall into the background. And what remains is just the simplicity and the peace of that simplicity. That's another telltale sign of the continuity of mindfulness or this coming together, this balance of alertness and relaxation, is peace. Peace, simplicity, and some sense, like the peace comes from the mind, is content with what it's knowing. As soon as the mind gets identified with the conceptual overlay, like our thoughts about things, it will never be stable because there is no ground in the conceptual level. It's like, where do we finally have ground? Like, even if I'm sure, like I have an idea that I'm better than the rest of you or I'm worse than the rest of you, and I'm pretty sure of one of those two views, conceptually I have to always be on the lookout for something that threatens my view. We're always patching up our view our conceptual view. But when we're just in the experience of the body, just in the experience of breathing, just in the experience of walking, washing dishes, or whatever it might be, there's a kind of confidence and release that arises, free from doubt. So these are just some things to stay on the lookout for. We'll stretch our legs. I'll go uh, um, give us instruction, do a 30-minute sit, and then we'll check in with each other after that. So you might want to stretch out your legs so that you'll be comfortable. Feel free to even stand for a minute if you want to release any tension. Take the time you need, and then whenever you're ready, you can sit back down, find a comfortable posture for your body tonight. Just do the best you can to find a stable posture for the body. Sense of integrity in the sitting posture. The vertebrae are nicely stacked, one on top of the other. And then the head sits on the spine, balanced, not leaning forward too much, not lifting the chin. Ears are over the shoulders to some extent, the nose in line with the navel.
you might find it useful to take one, two, three, four in deep breaths. And using the deep breathing to encourage the body and the mind to settle in to the experience, to come home to the way that it is now. As if we have all the time to breathe in and all the time in the world to breathe out. And eventually let the breath continue on its own. So we're not controlling the breath. Let's begin by receiving the sound of the bell. I'll ring it three times. The eyes can be open or closed, and we'll continue opening to hearing for a few minutes. What a relief not to have to think about the sounds that are being heard, but in a sense, Relaxing back into the sensitivity of hearing. The mind is already naturally sensitive to the sounds. So noticing that. Sounds are being heard naturally. And even effortlessly. Hearing in and of itself. So the mind is recognizing that hearing is being known. Hearing is like this. And again, it's quite a relief not to have to be either for or against the different sounds that are being heard. So there can be this inclusive 
attention, the attention that includes any sounds, however, whatever they might be. And in the same way, this beautiful, receptive awareness of sensations in the body now. So as if we were listening to the different sensations, bodily or physical sensations. In a way, it's a great ocean of sensation now. Some of the sensations that are arising here and now are pleasant, or some are probably unpleasant, and many are probably neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So in a sense, sitting right in the middle of this great ocean of physical sensations coming and going, the practice is including all the sensations that are coming and going, not needing the body experience to be different than how it is now. So on the one hand, we practice remembering this possibility of relaxing and trusting and accepting the physical sensations of the body now. At the same time, a willingness to be close, to be interested and alert, to be intimate with the way it is, these sensations.
light, there are ways to support the continuity of attention. And this is right, goes right to the heart of developing the practice of meditation. The power of the meditation is directly correlated with the continuity of mindfulness. The more the mindfulness is broken up, the weaker it is. The more continuous mindfulness there is, the more powerful it is. So feeling the body sitting and feeling the breath moving in the body. You can use meditation words at times to support the continuity of attention. So for example, every time you feel the breath coming in, you can just remember the mind is knowing this. So you could repeat the word knowing. And you can even repeat that word a couple times during the in-breath. Knowing. Knowing. And then with the exhalation, if you'd like, you could repeat the word releasing. Letting things be. Or something like that. So the breath coming in, we are reminding the mind to be alert by repeating the word knowing. Things are being known. This is being known. And with the exhalation, we're reminding the mind it's okay to relax by repeating the word releasing. Knowing with the in-breath. Releasing with the out-breath. But remember, don't demand anything, just it's an invitation to recognize the knowing, the interest, and to recognize the releasing, the relaxing with the out-breath. So use these kinds of meditation words when they're useful, but it's also perfectly fine to be doing silent practice, not using any words in the mind at all.
Be willing to begin again and again. And of course, when strong experience arises like pain in the body, you'll notice that the attention naturally goes to that strong experience. So don't worry about that, that's natural. Just acknowledge, oh, this is being known. The mind is worrying, this is being known. The mind is judging, this is being known. The mind is hating the pain in the ankle, this is being known now. Hating is being known. Not liking the pain is being known. So you can use this kind of internal language to help stabilize the mindfulness. Because mindfulness is what knows the way that it is now. So acknowledging distraction isn't a problem, it's the practice. Oh, it's like this now. This is what's being known. Can this be okay? So instead of turning distraction into a problem, simply acknowledge what the mind is doing, what the mind is knowing. Oh, it's like this now. So once again, you can be interested or alert and allowing and relaxed with what the mind is knowing. And then as soon as the mind is no longer drawn or distracted, then come back to the anchor. Just feel the body sitting and then even more specifically feel the breath moving in the body. The breath coming in is like this. Breath going out is like this.
willing to begin again and again. Whenever you feel confused, just remember how simple the practice is. We're interested in these two qualities of relaxation and alertness. So first, being interested or alert, seeing clearly how it is now. You can use the experience of the body sitting to be interested or alert to the experience of the body sitting. Oh, sitting is like this. That simple, clear recognition. Sitting now is like this. Or more specifically, breathing in is like this. And then remember the other quality of allowing the experience to be, relaxing with it. Breathing in, knowing that it's like this, waking up to the way it is. Exhaling, allowing the experience to be, relaxing with it, trusting it, allowing things to be.
And for the last couple of minutes, practice with the eyes open if they've been closed. So we're just gazing to the floor in front. In a real sense, we're sitting right in the middle of things, right in the middle of this life right now. And there is seeing being known and hearing being known, sensations being known, thoughts and emotions being known. Is it possible for the heart to just leave everything alone, to let things be? And even if there is some struggling resistance going on, noticing that and maybe allowing that to be. Can this be okay, this body-mind experiencing? Everything is being included. Take your time. You might want to adjust your posture. Release any tension you have in your body. See what you can do to help the body feel better. last week that one of the things that are people find very helpful is people sharing a little bit about what's being what's coming up or what's being known in their practice. So we'll take a little time now to do that. I also want before we end tonight to talk about posture a little bit more and then also to give some of the basic uh, maybe the basic framework uh, behind the meditation practice addressing the question, why meditate. So that's what we have for the last 45 minutes, but let's take at least 10 or 15 minutes to hear from people and uh, speak loudly if you can. If you can't, I'll repeat what you say so everybody can hear and say your name as well. So anybody have any questions or just sharing a little bit about what you noticed tonight in your set, but also this last week when you've been practicing at home, what was that like? What did you notice? What felt like a challenge? What felt good? What have you learned? Yeah. I've been struggling a while with the sort of point between 
when do you adjust and when do you just sit there when it tells you that your feet fall asleep or your you know, tail hurts or something like that. Yeah. Or your posture is like you got the slump. Um, I find myself saying, oh, so that's how it is when I'm like, you know, caving into the right or the left. But it begins to hurt. So I kind of wonder, you know, what, how long do you sit there and say, well, that's how it yeah, that's a good question. Did you hear what he asked? And it's uh, it points to the general truth that pain, discomfort, is an essential teacher. And it's very important <coughs> that, <coughs> not just in meditation practice, but life generally, that we cultivate this attitude that physical discomfort, and it's the same with mental, emotional distress or discomfort, that instead of it immediately being seen as a problem, I've got a problem, my body hurts, or I have emotional pain, but instead to practice letting it be a teacher. Okay, there is this physical pain. Now I'm sitting, there is this physical pain. I wonder, what is the skillful way to be with this physical pain? Now, in meditation practice, when pain arises, we could always just get up and leave. That could be a skillful way. But that assumes that's always going to be an option when physical pain arises for us in life. We can always get up and leave. But a lot of the physical pain we encounter in life, that isn't an option. So that's why when we choose an amount of time that we're going to sit, let's say we say, okay, I've got 30 minutes, I resolve to stay put for 30 minutes as best I can, or half an hour, or 45 minutes, or 10 minutes, or whatever you have at home to set. So you make that resolve, and that means whatever comes up in that time period that you resolve to sit for, it's your teacher. And you're just going to do the best you can. You're going to learn what you can learn. And, uh, <clears throat> You know, the, the whole point of the practice, the meditation practice, is to cultivate wholesome qualities of mind. Now, I simplified it by saying the wholesome qualities are just these two things. Relaxation, or re- allowing things to be, and interest, alertness, showing up, right? So, we're interested in cultivating wholesome qualities. We're not interested in reinforcing unwholesome qualities of mind. So if the pain in the back or the pain in the leg has developed during the course of the sit to such a degree that all we're doing is reinforcing the habit of resistance, of getting tight, well, we don't need to practice that because we're pretty good at that. (laughs) And it's not a helpful strategy in life. Like when things are difficult, get tight. I mean, we all have this cumulative physical tension. This is one of the things you notice, like when we relax, we actually can feel a lot of discomfort because what we begin to open to is how uncomfortable the body is from this cumulative tensing we've been doing all life long because we have this very inefficient strategy that when things are difficult, mentally or physically, get tight. Our back hurts? Well, let's tighten up around it, you know? I'm with people I'm not comfortable with, but let's get tight. You know, there's global warming, let's get tight. Um, I'm getting older, I'm going to get tight. I'm hungry, I'll get tight. There's traffic, I'll get tight. It just 
And then if we do that for a couple decades or five decades, five and a half decades for me, well then there's this cumulative effect in the body. So even when we do sit, even when there is the intention to be relaxed, what we notice as things settle down is how uncomfortable the sort of residual discomfort and pain, basically, in the body. Some people, some teachers call this the body of fear, the body of pain. But it's a real teacher in our practice. So don't be surprised if that arises for you when you're sitting. Some pain that we feel in the body is specific to our posture. You know, we're just sitting in a way that is causing the knee to hurt or the hip to hurt or the back to hurt. It's a problem with alignment or just developing the muscular strength to be able to sit still in an upright posture for 30 minutes. So sometimes that's it. And then for that kind of pain, (coughs) we're going to do two things. At the beginning of the sit, to spend some time really checking and listening and finding the appropriate posture. And even like you mentioned, I didn't hear your name. What was your name? Johnny. Johnny. What Johnny was saying, you know, like, should I adjust? Like when I notice that my posture is slumped or just maintain it? Well, it's kind of, there's no right answer to that. You can just experiment. If you feel like you're neurotically adjusting every two or three minutes, then you might just let it be slumped for a while and just see how that is. Um, So it's not necessarily wrong to mindfully adjust the posture. You just don't want to be doing it every few moments because it will really distract the mind. So uh, find that balance between the intention to be still, because when the body is still, it's easy for the mind to quiet down. When the body's in movement, the mind generally wants, the thinking mind wants to move too. So there is a value of stillness and relaxation, but it has to be balanced with how the mind is relating to the pain. And if the only strategy the mind knows is to get tight around the discomfort, then we want to say, ooh, I don't need to practice that. So then mindfully adjust your posture. Now that could even be like if you want to sit for 30 minutes, but you just don't have the strength in the body or the flexibility, then sit for as long as you can sit with skillful qualities in your mind. And then when all you're doing is resisting, then stand and do standing meditation for five or so minutes, let the tension in the body release, and then go back to sitting. And make that transition from sitting to standing, and then from standing to sitting part of the practice. It's a movement practice, like walking meditation is a movement practice. Tai Chi or yoga, if it's done with the right attitude, can be a movement practice. Walking from the car to the grocery store can be a movement practice. Washing dishes can be a movement practice. Same with adjusting the body when we're sitting. Even when you're here with, you know, 70, 80, 90 people, it's okay to adjust your posture. You're going to do it anyway. But just make it part of the practice. Don't think, okay, now I'm taking a break. No. So you see that edge where you're with the pain, you're relaxed with the pain, you're interested in the pain, and then you start to lose it. You're not relaxed with the pain. The mind wants to get distracted because it can't be interested. It's too intense. After a few moments of that, acknowledge, I don't have the skill, I don't have the balance of mind to be with this pain with the way that it is now. So I'm going to make an adjustment. 
I'm going to do something to release the intensity of the discomfort. I'm either going to stretch the leg out, or adjust the posture, or stand for a while. Or, if you're at home, you could do some walking meditation practice for a while, and then go back to sitting for the time that you have left. And even, you know, at monasteries and long-term retreat centers, that's what people do. They sit as long as they're comfortable sitting. For some people, it could be three hours. For some people, it might be 20 minutes. And then they do walking practice for half an hour or an hour. Then they sit as long as they're comfortable, where they can really work productively with the discomfort. And then when they can't anymore, they do walking practice. So even in our limited way, when we only have 20 minutes or 40 minutes, you can break it up if you need to. And then over time, you might be able to sit for longer periods of time. Pain is an important teacher. Make sure that when discomfort arises, mental or physical discomfort, you don't reflexively think, this is in the way of my meditation. No. Instead, the attitude should be, oh, my teacher has shown up. So nice to see you. Venerable pain in the body. So glad to see you. What do you have to teach me? Maybe today you teach me patience. Maybe you teach me humility. Maybe you'll teach me that things aren't what they appear to be. What is the experience of physical pain when there's unconditional surrender and acceptance? It's different than when there's resistance to the pain. Resisting physical pain is one thing. Acceptance of it is another thing. It's really That lesson alone is worth a million dollars. Just to know the difference between resisting... Because sometimes there's pain that there's nothing to do. There's no medicine we can take. It's like aging sometimes. The pain of aging is like that. You can't really fix it or make it go away. But you can know the difference between acceptance, allowing it to be, and resisting it. Resisting pain, unavoidable pain, is hellish. Accepting it is actually quite transforming. How can someone get old and die? Or how can someone lose someone they love in a a wholesome, beautiful, healing way? Do all the difficult experiences of life have to be debilitating for this heart? Is there a way for the difficult experiences of life, everything from ordinary toothaches, physical pain, to more profound pain of loss, death, Is there a way for those difficult parts of life to be beautiful through the way the heart or mind is relating to it? It doesn't mean that loss itself is beautiful, but the way the heart relates to it can be quite beautiful. I'm sure you've had this experience where you were with somebody who was really in a difficult place, but it was a beautiful experience. The capacity you had to show up, to really be there with the person, was beautiful even though you didn't want the person to be in that difficult place. Or maybe you did this for yourself when you were in a difficult place. And you really showed up. You really accepted. You had wisdom. You were there with wisdom. Yeah, did you have a comment or question? Yes, I was uh, wondering, did you go about after the session of the course? Is meditating, you know, is it okay to... 
Especially you're talking about different postures. Absolutely, all the postures should be used. So, the thing, there are advantages and disadvantages to all postures. Standing and walking tend to stimulate the mind more. Yeah, I think the lower class, they kind of holds up all their joints. Yeah. The, the savasana that you're talking about, the corpse pose, is, uh, you can see that that really supports the relaxation part of meditation, right? Remember the two qualities were training the mind to accept, to allow, to be relaxed, and we're training the mind to be alert. It's much harder with the training in alertness when you're lying down, but it's much easier in the acceptance, the allowing, the relaxation. So when you're all bound up, all wound up, lying down meditation can be quite useful. But generally, most people can't do it for too long before sliding into unconsciousness, right? So it's like really a great meditation posture for 5 to 15 minutes, depending on the person and how they are that day. What I meant is that sometimes I have a little bit of an experience, like I told I didn't hear what you said. I, I, I get myself... Yeah, well, it could be all kinds of things. So so he's saying that he gets himself into a different state. Well, there are all kinds of states that arise in meditation practice, regardless of what posture you're in. It can be in walking, it can be in sitting, it can be lying down. The Buddha taught to, to practice in all positions. But when you have had a lot of relaxation triggered, like you, like you can in yoga practice, in Hatha yoga practice, where you're doing the different stretches, or you get a good body work, you know, you have a good massage... It can trigger a lot of uh, um, ease in the body. Now, the interesting thing about concentration, remember, samadhi is when the mind gathers itself, collects itself around experience. Well, what do you imagine is the easiest kind of experience for the mind to gather itself around? Pleasant, right? And so when you're, like you called it triggering the endorphins, but... When you've had an experience, whether it's a nice run or a nice hot bath or a good massage or a good yoga class or Tai Chi session or a nice walk through the woods or skinny dipping in Lake Superior or whatever it might be, and then you're, then you're sort of sitting by the campfire or something and you have that natural rush where you come out of the sauna, you know, and you put cold water on you and you have that natural rush which is so pleasant. And what does the mind do with that pleasant experience? Well, it doesn't want to go anywhere, does it? It wants to stay right with the pleasantness of that experience. That is a natural samadhi. And when the mind is collected, it is a different kind of reality than when the mind is all over the place, worrying and planning and thinking and wondering and comparing and judging and all of that normal stuff. So that's what you're probably experiencing, is that a lot of pleasant bodily sensations are coming out of the yoga class. Then you lie down in savasana in the corpse pose. You've got five or ten minutes just to be. And the mind, the thinking mind, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't pick up anything. It settles. And there's this natural unification or what we call samadhi, the coming together of the mind, the gathering of the mind. Now, that... Uh, those beautiful experiences, that inner happiness that arises in those experiences, 
can be very healing. It's not the end of meditation practice. In a way, it's just the beginning. Because the contentedness and unification of mind, it actually makes the mind a really useful instrument for seeing the way things are. Because this mind doesn't have an agenda. So, now when this mind begins to investigate the nature of the mind, the nature of experience, it doesn't have an agenda because it's content. So it's not experiencing or looking at experience in terms of what it can get, because it's content. It doesn't feel like it needs anything. Normally, our normal mind is not such a useful instrument for investigation because it's a greedy mind and it's a fearful mind. It's strategic. It's trying to get contentedness. So I can't rely on it to see clearly because it's a hungry beast looking for safety, looking for comfort. But when we have comfort, when the mind-heart is content and at ease, that mind sees clearly. So generally the way the Buddha taught is learn how to have that quietness, that samadhi, that contentedness, the stillness, the peacefulness. Learn how to find that place and then use that mind to investigate the nature of the mind itself, the nature of experience itself. What we call, that's why we call this an insight meditation center because we're interested in having insight. What is the nature of fear? What is the nature of judgment? What is the nature of doubt? What is the nature of love? What is the nature of all these different qualities of mind that arise in our lives? We never really take a good look because our mind is always caught up in this strategic stuff, trying to get comfort, trying to get contentedness, trying to get rid of discomfort and things that scare us. So we're always, you know, basically some version of a hungry beast even though we dress it up in clothes and civilization, we are a hungry beast most of the time. But when we, when we uh, through training the mind, touch more and more often the inner peace, inner contentedness, instead of just getting attached to those nice states of mind, we want to use them to see clearly, to investigate. Thanks for bringing that up. Time for a couple more comments. What else have you been learning and seeing? Yeah. Maybe a little louder. Okay, when you struggle, and when you say about opening your eyes, it's more difficult to keep that concentration on that focusing. Um, physically, what do you do with that vision? Do you go to one spot? But then if you're walking, you can't necessarily be doing that one spot. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. So Ramon was asking about uh, when you practice with your eyes open, whether you're doing walking practice or like at the end of the sit. And I recommend this to you. Uh, you let's say you're sitting for 30 minutes at home. Well, save a few minutes at least at the end. You can practice the whole time if you want with your eyes open. But at least a couple minutes with your eyes open at the end because it's more like daily life practice. So it's a nice transition to practicing all day long to do a few minutes in your formal set with the eyes open. It would just make it easier to know how to practice throughout the day. But Ramon was asking, well, what do you do with your visual experience? 
Do you focus on a particular spot? Or what do you do? Well, in sitting practice, when you're practicing with your eyes open, you know, in a perfect world, you wouldn't be around a lot of people. You know, you'd be sitting on a beautiful mountainside, and you'd just be gazing out into space. And that way, the mind, the visual experience, the mind wouldn't be in the, it wouldn't be triggered to focus on interesting visual phenomena that are arising. Because it's just seeing sort of blue or, you know, the color of clouds or whatever. Here, you know, we just gaze to the floor in front. So you cast your gaze down, so you're not really seeing people so much. And you're not actually, we're not um, using, some people do this, and it, it can be an effective concentration practice to have a specific visual object like the flame of a candle or any number of objects, you know. You can use that. But that's not what I'm suggesting. So you want more of what we call a soft gaze. So even though you're looking at the floor, you're not fixing the attention on the floor. It's not like you're studying the grain of the wood or anything. It's more of a soft gaze. Almost like you're looking right through the floor, so the focal point is beyond the floor. There's a soft gaze. And there's more the sense of receptivity, just receiving the shape and color and form of whatever that visual experience is. Same with walking. The tendency, and this is hard because uh, this is why we tend to think more when we're doing movement practice, because generally when we're doing yoga or tai chi or walking meditation, the eyes are open, obviously, otherwise easy to fall. So we keep the eyes open, but it's really hard, like now when you look around, it's hard to see another human being without judgment arising. I like that shirt, you know, I don't like that one. So it's really hard to be seen without triggering all kinds of memories and perceptions and then from those memories and perceptions, comparing mind, judging mind, and on and on, like that. So what we try to discipline the mind to gaze downward so that all you're seeing are socks in the lower third of your pants, the pants of other people, and not it's generally not that interesting, and provokes less thinking, right? So you're just gazing down when you're doing movement practice, and you're really using the physicality of the movement itself as what you're focusing on. So you're grounding in the visceral experience of the body moving, or even even like when you're sitting still, you're there with the physicality of breathing or the physicality of sitting more than the visual sense. The thing about the visual sense is it's very much tied to thinking, more than the other sense gates, more than hearing is even. It's very hard to see something. I look at the wall over there. It's very hard to see that wall without the cognitive processing wall. The visual form and the cognitive, the conceptual wall are just like that. I look, I see Zabutan, you know, this meditation cushion. It's hard to see it without the mind perceiving it conceptually, knowing what it is conceptually. I can't just see the shape, the color, the form of it without the concept being there. So generally, we, in initial practice, we're not emphasizing seeing as the uh, sort of training ground for mindfulness because it's just so tied with thinking. But it's good to practice with the eyes open. 
but just rely more on the physicality, even though you're seeing, get interested in the moving, you know, you're turning on the light, if you notice the reaching, the reaching, the touching, the flicking, the moving, the moving, the hand touching, the, arm, the leg, or whatever, so you're using the, the physical reality and not kind of getting drawn into the scene. Yeah, thanks, Ramon, for bringing that up. It's a good point. Yeah, Robert. I was too close to sit. I was very drowsy. And I uh, used the last letter that she said to do exactly what she just said to open my eyes and gaze softly. And that worked very well. Yeah, and that's a great point that Robert brings up. Because sleepiness, for some of us, I mean, generally, people fall into two camps. They tend to be restless or they tend to be sleepy when they meditate. So, and then I guess maybe a third of us go back and forth between the two. But if you're one of those people who tend to be drowsy and sleepy, uh, one of the first strategies is to open the eyes and to practice with the eyes open. Another one is to sit upright more, more upright. A third is to ask the mind to do more. So, for example, maybe you don't mentally note what the mind is knowing, but if you ask your mind to note, now a sleepy mind doesn't want to work. But ask the sleepy mind to do work. Honey, I'd like you to name whatever it is you're knowing. So when the breath is coming in and you're knowing the breath coming in, then say that. Okay, breathing in is like this. So you actually say that. And that work that the mind has to do to say, breathing in is like this, or breathing in is being known, wakes the mind up. If you don't ask the mind to do anything, it encourages more and more sleepiness. So those are three strategies. The uprightness, as Robert mentioned, opening the eyes. And the third is, um, ask the mind to see more details of what's being known or to mentally note or name what it is knowing. Because that will, that will increase the alertness. Yeah, a couple other comments. Anything else come to mind? Yeah, your name? Uh, my name is Brad, and actually your last point leads me to something that I've been questioning a lot, and that is just how language fits into the practice, because at certain points it seems like you're talking about things in sort of pure experiential terms. It's almost pre-language, forceful mm-hmm. language, and at other times... You're using verbal cues. Yeah, but verbal verbal cues can aim the mind to the non-conceptual experience. It's just this being known. No, that's obviously language. But that that's what we call right speech or right thought, right? Because it's the kind of thought that directs the mind to the present moment, to that experiential, preconceptual knowing or being. So there are, there's very much a place for thinking. The thinking that brings the mind into the present moment is the thinking that's considered to be skillful. And the thinking that leads the mind into endless proliferation, what in, in Buddhism we call papacha, is the Pali word for it, that uh, conceptual proliferation, that is what we call unskillful thinking. Because it just leads to more thinking. It doesn't actually lead to insight or to a deepening of understanding. It leads to doubt and confusion and sort of one thing leading to another. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Maybe time for one more comment, if there is anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm reading about it. 
That's a good point. So half open eyes. Or the other thing, if you're regularly sleepy, is just have more light in the room. Like sit uh, where there's some sun coming into the room or actually sit out in a sunny space, not necessarily directly in the sun, but where there's some bright light because the bright light energizes the mind. If you tend to be really restless, less light in the room. Some of this is just commonsensical. And if you experiment, like it sounds like you did, you will find what works because... So much of what we're doing is we're helping the heart or the mind find its natural balance because that's where learning this kind of deeper spiritual learning happens is when the mind is balanced. It's content, it's relaxed, it's interested, it has a sense of humility, like the absence of arrogance, like I already know what's going on, why should I pay attention? You need humility in order to really show up, to be awake, to be alert. So, as long as we have a sense of where we're going, like a, some intuitive sense of what this wholesome balance of mind is, then there's a real art to how to support the arising of that balance. And it's really, it's the, it's the real work of the practice, because we're not used to the mind being in this beautiful balance. We're basically used to our mind, the quality of our mind, being pushed around by the different circumstances. So when circumstances are painful, our mind's grumpy. When circumstances are really pleasant, our mind is like indulging. It's it's not really alert. It's just like, oh God, I'm in paradise. Why do I have to pay attention? You know, we just sort of want to, you know, sort of relax in the proverbial hammock of life and just until it is no more, you know, and then we're grumpy again. So what we want is to see what that balance is and then how to sustain it through difficult times, how to sustain that balance through pleasant times, so that we're not losing that balance of mind, that equanimity, that steadiness. That means we're learning all day long. That's when the practice really gets alive, really becomes productive. That's really where we're going with this practice. The formal training, the 30 minutes, or once you get really into your practice, the maybe 60 minutes a day you put into it. And just by the way, once you get really steady, you'll find this is time well spent. Even if you have a very busy day with lots of kids or a lot of a busy job or taking care of your parents or whatever you might be doing, it's not wasted time. For one thing, people tend to need less sleep the more you practice regularly, and almost equal proportions, if not more. But the other thing is you're just so much more efficient. And then the most important thing is you're living your life in a way that you're cultivating the values that really matter. The most tragic thing in life is when we live our life cultivating a mind or heart that we don't want. So then we end up 
in old age, if not sooner, with a mind or heart that we never wanted. You know, we practice being grumpy our whole life, so there we are, a grumpy person. We practice being stingy our whole life. We practice being disconnected and distracted our whole life. So by the time we're 55 or whatever, we're really good at being distracted and disconnected. It's hard to have a relationship with another human being because we don't actually know how to be present. We know how to think we know we're being present or pretend like we're being kind, but we don't actually know what it means to be intimate and kind because we haven't practiced it. So in the most basic way, when we're with the breath coming in and with the breath going out or with the pain in the knee, we're practicing being intimate in a way that will be useful in every other moment of our life. How to show up, how to be clearly aware, how to be relaxed, how to trust life as it actually is, not demand that life be the way we want it to be, but learn how to receive life as it is. I mean, these are essential lessons. And if we practice 60 minutes a day, let's say, or 40 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, we'll get better at it. And we'll get better at learning and practicing during the day, too. So then that's like I was saying. Then the momentum really begins to build. Because then you're practicing 16 hours a day or 18 hours a day. As opposed to, we practice 30 minutes a day, and then the rest of the day we're practicing something else, like being disconnected, being reactive. So I want to do two more things before we end. We have about 12 minutes. I want to talk just a little bit about um, working with posture. So there's different ways. So first sitting uh, on the floor, and then I'll talk about sitting in a chair. Now... For some people who aren't that flexible, you might want to have your knees, just your ankles underneath your knees, and you can even prop up your knees, because otherwise you're just balancing on your two little sitz bones. And that's not, you know, the, you know what really creates groundedness is a wide base of support. This is true just, you know, in terms of engineering. You need a wide base. Then that wide base, the spine arises, and that elegant, curved way out of that nice, wide base, and then the head sits on top of the spine. So, the more that your this triangle is making contact with the floor, the better. So, if your knees are sticking up, then you can put some things under to help. Or, elevate your pelvis with a higher cushion, maybe not that high, but, and then sit on the front half of it, so that tilts the knees down a little bit. That will help. Okay, so that's one posture. Another is to have one ankle in front of the other. That works better for some people than crossing, which tends to decrease the circulation. You get more of the legs falling asleep when you've got one leg on top of the other. So that's one possibility. Then you can work with the lotuses. So it starts with the quarter lotus, which is where you put the top of your foot on one of your calves, or you can even tuck it in a little bit like that. Can you guys see over here? And then the half lotus, you're putting it on top of the thigh, something like that, 
Now, of course, you need the flexibility in your hip. It's not about flexibility in the knee. It's hip. If you're feeling the torque here, you're harming your knee. So, I mean, you might feel a little bit initially, but don't uh, push this because you really have to take care of your knees. If the hip rotates, then this angle in the knee is the normal angle in the knee. Okay? And that could go either way. Traditionally, a little bit more traditionally to have the right foot up on the left thigh, but either way works and you might want to alternate. And then the hands can be in any way. Now, some of you could do the full lotus. I'm not going to even try that tonight. Where you put this foot on top of that, um, you need to be really comfortable and you have to have quite released hips to do a full lotus. But that's a nice, because you really feel like the base of support. And then if you're in that, you might not need as much height. And then you've got a much wider base in the floor. And that really allows the spine to sit in a way that you can sit comfortably for longer periods of time. Now, most people can't do that. But if you're young and you're doing yoga, you can work your way toward that. Now, some people find it easier to sit in a kneeling position. And we have benches in the closet, but you can even use regular cushions. And then put them on the upright way, not flat way. And then you can take a support cushion, even a higher one if you want. And this is good for people who don't have a lot of flexibility in their hips. Your knees can be either relatively close or you can spread them apart. And you can do this either with a bench or a cushion like I'm doing it. And this is another nice sitting posture. And generally, you can start by pushing, like exaggerating the arch in the lower spine and then slowly backing off where you're, you're sort of turning your pelvis, pushing the tailbone down a little bit. So arch, because you're finding the natural appropriate curve in the spine. The spine isn't straight. Maybe you don't know that, but the spine's got its natural curves. Arch, and then release. Tuck the chin a little bit, not too much. You fall asleep. Not lift too much. You get spaced out into thought, but just a little tucking. Eyes can be closed. They can be half open, or they can be open wider. Especially if you have like nature in front of you. You're not looking at other people. You can have your eyes just gazing out into the leaves of a tree or forest. And then sitting in a chair, the nice thing about a chair is you don't have to have flexibility in your lower body. And the thing is, we tend to over-rely on the back of the chair. And people tend to fall asleep more often or get drowsy in chairs. But the key would be to wean yourself off the back of the chair as you develop the strength in your back over months of practice. So you could just start by maybe using it, but using like a kitchen chair or a chair like we have in the room now. And then uh, eventually, you know, you can even elevate the back legs of the chair so there's a slight tilt. Just like I said, when you're using the cushion, you sit in the front half. Well, the same with the chair. If you have a tilt, then you're going to be less likely to do this in the chair. You can even get a wedge or you can fold a blanket in a way that tilts your pelvis forward this way if you were facing like I'm facing. And... That allows your spine then to be more upright. And you could start by weaning yourself the upper back off of the back of the chair and just support your lumbar with a little folded blanket or a small pillow there. So you're getting some support from the back of the chair, but not too much. But then maybe eventually, if your back is strong enough and you take your time to develop your strength, 
you can use a chair without touching the back of the chair at all, especially if you have a little angle that you created for yourself. So that's some advice for chairs. The other piece of advice for chairs is, if you're a tall person, elevate the chair, maybe like putting some blankets on the seat of the chair, so your thighs are at a right angle to the shin. Okay? That means if you're short, you need to elevate the floor so you get that nice right angle. Generally, we don't cross the legs when we're sitting. It's a little bit more stable if the feet are flat on the floor. And then the hands in any symmetrical way. I mean, it is somewhat traditional to have the hands resting, right hand resting in the left hand. Some people have touched their thumbs lightly. You can do that, but don't, don't feel like you have to take any particular posture. But generally, the hands would be symmetrical. So they could be like this, resting there on the legs in a relaxed way, or palms up on the legs, regardless of if you're sitting in the chair, or cross-legged, or kneeling like I am now. So any questions about uh, the sitting practice? about posture, rather. And feel free to come up. A lot of these questions are specific to your body anyway, so today or any of the days of the class, feel free to come up afterward if you have specific problems or questions. A lot of people ask about legs falling asleep. If your leg falls asleep but the tingling goes away one or two, three minutes after you get up and move, you don't need to worry that you're doing damage. If that numbness or tingling persists for long periods of time, then don't sit that way. And uh, generally, the more the body relaxes, the place where the nerve is getting pinched or where there's pressure in the nerve tends to diminish the more there's a sense of release and relaxation in the body. So often it will change over time. But you might need to experiment a little bit to find a posture that isn't pinching the nerve in any way. Now I want to take just the last few minutes to mention some of the handouts. So uh, one of the handouts from last week, and by the way, if you're not getting the emails with the handouts, you can put your name up here and print your email neatly so I can read it, and then I'll get you on the email list so you get all the handouts for the class. So last week I had a, uh, a handout about why meditate, and also more recently in the email the handout about um, what's called the Eightfold Path in the Buddhist tradition. So I just want to mention that briefly, that we're not just... We talk a lot about you know being mindful of the breath coming in, being mindful of the breath going out, being mindful of distraction. But this mindfulness is basic competence in life for human beings. So we want to be mindful in our relationships. So in terms of our relationships... What we're being mindful of is harming or non-harming. Like that's a beautiful, useful object of meditation. How is it what I'm saying or doing is leading to harm for myself or others? I mean, just that, just to be interested in that, if you did nothing else in your life but got really interested in what is it that I'm doing and how is it either leading to harm or non-harm? What is the mind thinking? What is it saying? What is it doing? And is it leading to harm or non-harm for myself or others? This whole level of practice, you know, in terms of the Eightfold Path, it's one-third of the Eightfold Path. In Buddhism, it's called sila. 
Here, you know, in English, we'd say that's ethical conduct or living with integrity, you know, or commitment to non-harming. But it's important. It's part of the practice. So if you're interested in this path, what we call in Buddhism the path of awakening, then one-third of it is bringing the mindfulness we're generating, we're uncovering in our formal sitting practice into the study of harming. How am I in the world and is it leading to harm for myself or others? And you can observe that all day long. Like, even like how you put your shoes on in a few minutes when you leave. You know, are you doing it in an aggressive way? How you pull out of the parking lot? Because, well, you can, harming is very subtle. Like, you can be rough, unnecessarily rough. Like, I notice sometimes after talks, because I have sort of a tendency to, you know, be a little louder than I need to be. It's like, even that's a kind of aggression. Like, why not be a little bit more settled in the tone of voice when I'm communicating with other people? A little bit more relaxed in my body. Just as the cultivation of this value of non-harming. So, this, the cultivation of the value of non-harming requires mindfulness. There's no way to deepen this practice of non-harming without paying attention in this balanced way. So that's one third. The other third we've talked about tonight, it's this practice of samadhi, where we're using mindfulness to find how to maintain balance, like what this balance is, alert and relaxed, and how to sustain it in a profound way, like in the perfect conditions where the room is quiet and I don't have any responsibilities, I don't have to talk to other people. How? What kind of balance, what is the nth degree of that balance where the mind is 100% present, alert, interested, and 100% released and relaxed? Right. So this is like the laboratory where the conditions are perfect. That's our daily meditation time where we found a place in our apartment or home the dog is out of the room, the cat's out of the room, the cell phone is off, everyone I live with knows not to bother me, I'm not hungry, I'm not full, I'm not sleepy, I'm not restless, I pick the time of day where my mind is already sort of in balance, if I can, you know. And then in that, in those optimal conditions, I'm really exploring the nth degree of that balance of alert, bright, interested, and relaxed and content and allowing and trusting. So that's a th- another third of the practice. And then the last third is, where you, this is the most subtle, it's called wisdom, the wisdom third, or panya is the Pali word. We're using mindfulness to investigate the view. We're paying attention to what is the view in the mind. Like, for example... If somebody were to just get up and storm out of the room, I'd probably take it personally at some level. And if I'm practicing mindfulness, I would notice this view that that is personal, that this feels personal. What other people do seems personal, seems to be about me. That's a view that the mind has, that this is all about me. Is it really all about me? No, that's just a view that I'm inhabiting or not. So that's nice to know. Another view might be that this is just stuff happening. It's all nature, you know, just these infinite number of causes and conditions dancing together 
making this what it is right now. That's a different view. Now, when I say view, I mean that we're actually living out of that point of view, that perspective. Mostly, we're living out of the perspective, this is all about me. doesn't mean we're aware that we're living out of that perspective. But this is subtle, so we're generating enough mindfulness to be interested in what is the view that this life is being lived out of right now. Is it a view that's tainted with fear or non-fear? Is it a view that's tainted with greediness, stinginess, or generosity, contentedness? We're just interested in view. We're not judging the view, but we're mindful of it because it's relevant. So that's the third third of the practice. We use mindfulness to pay attention to non-harming. We use mindfulness to learn how to develop that beautiful balance of alertness and relaxation. And then we use mindfulness and the results and the stability we get from these first two trainings to do this most subtle work, to be mindful of the view that the mind, this life is living out of right now. We really can't do that work, the wisdom part of the practice, unless we have the stability we get by practicing non-harming. We practice non-harming by being mindful of harming. We practice developing the balance of mind by noticing how the mind gets out of balance and how it gets into balance. And when we do those two well enough, we can start doing this last third of the practice, which is getting interested in view. And just in simple terms, the view is, is the mind taking things personally, or is the mind not taking things personally right now? That's just the easy way to remember how to do this third part of the practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.